think about these small organizations who are working on behalf of our local farmers, instead of utilizing that funding to open new markets, they were having to, to focus on this, once again, what I would say is a, a politicized process, a politicized study. And, and it hurt them. Organizations are still hurting because of the amount of resources they had to provide for this process. And I think that's, that is an untold story that needs to be shared because we see even more studies being proposed. Welcome back to DAM, the official podcast of Northwest Hydropower. I'm your host, Austin Rohr, and I manage all things communications here at Northwest River Partners. For those of you who've never paid the Who We Are page of our website a visit, educating the public and policymakers and engaging in public processes associated with hydropower is core to our work. So it makes perfect sense here at DAM that we dedicate some more time to the subject. And as I so often remind you, I am not the subject matter expert. I'm just the guy who seeks out subject matter experts to lob questions at in an attempt to provide you with some relevant and interesting information. We could debate whether or not I've been successful in that attempt thus far, but what's not up for debate is the credentials of today's guest, Sean O'Brien, who I'm very excited to have on today. Sean, thanks for carving out some time to join us. Austin, it's so great to be with you. Northwest River Partners was an invaluable partner, may I say, as uh, I was a congressional staffer in Washington, D.C. for uh, a great amount of time working on these issues. And so it's it's so great to continue to the relationship and, and to be with you today. Absolutely. And, and today you come to us from the Washington Policy Center, where you're currently the Eastern Washington director. But you do have an extensive background you touched on there a bit in terms of policy in really both Washingtons. So uh, take me through your career a little bit and the experiences you compiled this far. That's right. From from one Washington to the other and back again, really. Um, so as a, a Pacific Northwesterner, grew up outside of Portland, um, went to school at uh, Gonzaga for college, lived in Seattle for a few years before I did venture off to the other Washington for uh, a stint on Capitol Hill. You know, it's it's been an amazing opportunity for me to really uh, be able to work on behalf of the Pacific Northwest and Washington State um, in in both <laughs> localities, both both here in Washington State, where I'm, I'm now located. I'm uh, a Tri-Cityan, living uh, in Tri-Cities for the past six months now after moving back from Washington, D.C., but yeah, previously was was in D.C. for eight years working for Congressman Newhouse from when he was uh, first elected as a freshman and uh, stayed with him all of those eight years and uh, incredibly proud of of the work that that I was able to do alongside the congressman, uh, specifically on, on these issues of critical importance of infrastructure and natural resources uh, in our region. And so during that time, you know, what uh, what exactly sort of different things did you work in? I mean, um, you know, what what is it like to be in in that role over there? Yeah, you bet. So I was the congressman's uh, lead staffer on all things energy, environment, natural resources. Um, so specifically looking at, you know, obviously the, the Columbia Snake River power system, um, the Columbia River Treaty, which is obviously just a huge issue for our region, um, certainly salmon um, and predation issues, um, and then also on, on the energy side of things um, from our 
uh, nuclear and hydro routes, uh, as well as to our um, ventures into new clean energy, uh, additional clean energy on top of those baseload resources. Um, obviously, we've got a lot of exciting things taking place on the new nuclear front. Um, so the congressman being an appropriator, uh, serving on the Appropriations Committee, um, played a really pivotal role specifically on the energy and water uh, subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee that funds a lot of these resources, these resource-based systems. Uh, and so uh, he, he really was in, in a key leadership role to make sure that you know, our, our river power system um, was operated and, and funded appropriately. And so uh, it, it was a, a, a critical role and uh, he continues to serve on that subcommittee uh, in Washington, D.C. And, and so I was proud to uh, to serve as the lead there. And I'd be remiss if I didn't go back to your point that I, I'm now uh, with Washington Policy Center. Uh, we're a state-based public policy think tank focusing a lot on Olympia's uh, operations. And so it's been really full circle for me to be able to go from the federal level and now back to the state level in returning home. I actually interned at the policy center nearly a dozen years ago just outside of, just out uh, after my time at Gonzaga uh, and so it's it's been fun to return home now and really utilize a lot of the skills and knowledge that I gained in DC and now attribute it back to to the state level and and you know obviously there's a lot of interaction and dynamics that take place between the state and federal uh, components and frankly I think, a lot more could be shared, both the good ideas and the bad, when it comes to learning from uh, our experiences between the state and feds. And uh, I think that's that's a, a key role that I'm really wanting to lean in on in my role as Eastern Washington Director with the Policy Center um, in, in helping build that bridge of, of communication and, and sharing ideas between uh, our state leaders and uh, those who are elected at the federal level. Well, you know, it speaks to to the, you know, the, there's kind of this thing that we brought up, uh, you know, I, I touched on and you mentioned as well, of there kind of being two Washingtons, right? And it seems like uh, the thing that I often hear is that in D.C. and, and really um, for a lot of the country, you don't even really think of uh, Washington in terms of the state, right? I mean, it's just something that uh, people who aren't from our area maybe aren't really focused on. And in some ways, it seems like that also applies to some of the issues we have here. So I could imagine that in some ways, you know, having the experience of, of being at that federal level and trying to bridge that gap, you know, there's a, a value there in making sure that, hey, you know, let's make sure uh, Northwest issues are, are on the radar. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, it's funny, so many folks in DC refer to it as Washington, whereas Myself coming from Washington State, I refer to it as DC. Uh, but but you're absolutely right. I, and you know I should I should point out that um, Congressman Newhouse serves as chairman of the Congressional Western Caucus. And for my last two years in DC, I served as the executive director of the caucus. And it's a coalition of members of Congress. You know, uh, at the time we had uh, roughly 80 members of Congress who not only come from the West, but really who represent rural communities, rural districts across the country. And the, the key reason that, that that 
entity even exists was to provide that voice for communities who often aren't listened to or often aren't heard of or, or thought of uh, when it comes to um, how policy is, is decided in DC. And so together, bringing those, those voices of those rural leaders they provide themselves a stronger platform to make sure that their their communities are are listened to, are heard of, and and, and I think, you know, my returning home to Eastern Washington is very much um, a similar kind of dynamic where, you know, far often in Olympia, the decisions that are are being made focus a lot on you know Seattle and King County, really the the population bases, and so my role here is to make sure that the rural communities of Eastern Washington are are heard in Olympia, and that our concerns, our ideas, are are included in that mix as well. And so again, it's been that fun dynamic of doing so at the federal level, making sure that the the rural pockets, the small communities across the country are heard, and now doing so at the state level uh, here in uh, on the east side of the Cascade uh, Curtain. It's an interesting dynamic that you, you mentioned there too as well, because so often in our work here at the organization, we're trying to look at hydropower issues, energy resources, environmental issues, all these things as, you know, issues that don't necessarily need to be uh, partisan, right? You know, they, they really should be viewed as a, uh, a bipartisan effort to, to try and make sure that we're all moving in the same direction. But uh, at least for us here in the Northwest, there is sort of a, another partisanship which exists, which is that, that divide between the East and the West side. And, you know, the, the challenges of the rural communities on the East side don't necessarily align with some of the policies that are dreamed up on the west side, you know, and and so, um, yeah, I, I think uh, it'd be interesting, you know, as we go through today's conversation to kind of further examine the ways in which we can all kind of, you know, bridge some of those gaps and and sort of uh, try to extinguish at least some of that divide. Well, and that's so true, and and you know, it's it's funny because. The vast majority of action that takes place both in Washington, D.C. and in Olympia is overwhelmingly bipartisan and, frankly, nonpartisan. And so often we end up getting put into these boxes of your side versus my side, whether it's um, geographically or uh, on, on partisan lines. And yet every year our delegation in the Pacific Northwest come together and all support the same budget that funds our system, that funds our energy resources, that uh, funds our natural resource management. And so it's it's kind of a head scratcher that actually, if we were just to take a step back and, and remove ourselves from those partisan leanings that we often get boxed into, um, these things are all supported on, frankly, a unanimous basis uh, constantly. <laughs> and so um, I think that's something really important that we need to recognize and perhaps find ways to tap into more to um, bring out those the, the brighter angels of these dynamics rather than the, um, the just you know severe and divisive partisanship. Absolutely. And, you know, I, hydropower isn't the only issue that I follow. Obviously, it's uh, something I pay attention to here for work. But outside of work, there's lots of other uh, things that I'm, I'm keeping my eye on as well. And uh, what you said, I think, is certainly true of, you know, really a lot of issues when it comes to, to policy and government and things like that, which is, you know, 
the stuff that actually gets done tends to be uh, really partisan and unanimous. And the things that don't get done are maybe the ones that are, you know, more divisive and make the headlines, but they don't necessarily translate into actual action. Um, so it's an interesting thing to observe. Yeah. And, you know, I'll just say to your point about the fact that certainly that's the case on, on all, you know, a, a myriad of issues across the gamut, but I would say even on the hydropower piece, I mean, you think about that energy and water budget, uh, that subcommittee funding appropriations bill that I, I mentioned Mr. Newhouse serves on, um, you know, again, every year we end up coming to a, a bipartisan consensus to fund that. And, and that that's everyone supporting, you know, re rehab on our dams and habitat restoration budget and, 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 and all these things. So uh, I think, again, even on hydro, even on some of these, um, you know, what we see as contentious issues, um, they, our delegation always ends up actually on the same side to support these, these budgets. And so I think, again, that focusing on that common ground, um, that idea that, hey, we actually do all end up coming together at the end of the day is something that I think could really benefit a lot of these other discussions that are taking place, some of these other challenging discussions that are taking place. Well, I appreciate that you speak from a, a place of experience on that as well. And, and speaking of experience, looking through some of your biography and, and background for today's discussion, um, I also see that there's some mention of different programs you've been a part of as well outside of just, you know, uh, actual career and, you know, sort of the stuff that you might see on a resume. Uh, one of these is this Ag Forestry Leadership Program. Could you explain what that is and, and what you've gained from being a part of it? Yeah, no, I appreciate you flagging that. Um, it, it truly was such a, a worthwhile opportunity. Um, and I love to to give Mr. Newhouse a hard time because I, uh, <laughs> Mr. Newhouse was in class four of the program and I just graduated from class 43. So uh, I'd love to, to poke him a little bit there. Uh, but so ag forestry, uh, you know, as mentioned, it's been around for decades now and it's uh, a leadership development program for mid-career professionals who work in resources, forestry, agriculture, um, or any adjacent industry or sector that surrounds those issues. And, and you know, I was a bit of the odd man out being the policy guy, uh, but obviously handling those issues, it, it was directly pertinent. And, and I was also the odd man out because a majority of the two-year program, I was actually based in Washington, D.C., and I would travel home for our seminars. So, the program is really structured over uh, a dozen seminars held in every corner of the state where we go and we talk to local leaders. We go on field tours and learn about um, industries and sectors on the ground. Um, and it's it's through that direct collaboration um, conversations, dialogue that we come together. And, and, and this is not a partisan group. Um, this is, in fact, we were made up of, of bipartisan um, uh, perspectives uh, within it. And uh, together, we, we not only focus on our inner leadership um, uh, skills development and things like that, but also how we can serve as leaders in the community working on these, you know, very challenging uh, dynamics and conversations from forestry to our waterways to agriculture, et cetera. So, um, and, and then I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that 
There's also two seminars, both in Washington, D.C., and then internationally. And so our class actually traveled to Vietnam at the beginning of this year. And uh, it, it was an incredible opportunity for us to learn a lot more about Washington State's exports and how we develop new markets overseas. Um, obviously, our access to the Pacific Rim um, is uh, is second to none. And so uh, the opportunity to see that firsthand and, and how those markets are developed was incredibly worthwhile. So uh, it, it was an, an awesome program to be a part of. And it was neat for me, again, as the policy guy to uh, be able to get home uh, to Washington State and to all corners of the state and, and learn a lot more, but also see some of the on the ground action that's taking place with the very policy that I was handling uh, in Washington, D.C. And you mentioned you were the odd man out in a sense. So maybe uh, you could paint a, a better picture. Who who was the uh, sort of common person there? I mean, what what other types of people uh, made up your your class? Yeah, so I would say fifty, nearly fifty percent were actual producers, right? So we've we've got a wheat farmer from Dayton, uh, uh, a dairy woman from Sunnyside, um, you know blueberry farmer from up in uh, the Skagit Valley. Um, and then you've got other folks who work um, in the forestry sector. Um, so we obviously have some incredibly, um, you know, prominent uh, names uh, like Warehouser in our neck of the woods, Sierra Pacific. Um, and so we had uh, employees of those companies as well. Um, and some also just, um, you know, business adjacent folks who who certainly work directly with some of those industries. But uh, but yes, I, I was the odd man out as the policy guy. And so it was it was a great opportunity for us to share our our different perspectives and um, professional experiences and backgrounds um, to, to learn a ton. And we were the first post covid class. So we were actually a, a smaller group, which I think lent to even more uh, opportunity to to get to know each other really well. And I think that particularly became evident in our international travels to Vietnam for two weeks where we had just a, a, a phenomenal time. Um, we, we, we ran day and night um, to, uh, to just see as much as we could learn as much as we, we could. And uh, it was incredibly valuable. It, it's kind of cliche to say, but networking is everything in a sense. Right. And, and um, you know, that sounds like an incredible networking opportunity and, Given what your your current role is and also what you've done in the past, I'm sure that there was a lot of learning that you could uh, gain from being in that kind of group and, and being surrounded by those sorts of folks. Uh, and with all that experience in mind, could you share maybe some of the stories from working so closely on these issues and, and being surrounded by these different groups of people? Yeah, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll point back to my time with the Congressional Western Caucus where um, you know, as mentioned, it was it was our job to really highlight the voices of communities, um, you know, small rural communities across the country. And it was incredibly invaluable because, you know, we would we would travel a ton with Mr. Newhouse to visit his members districts. Um, and, you know, we're not going to the big cities, right? We're, we're going to the small little pockets that you wouldn't necessarily have a reason to travel to or through um, without this direct uh, uh, purpose. And so uh, whether it was 
um, ice fishing in northern Minnesota in February in negative 25 degree weather where we could learn about their specific uh, resource challenges and 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 also um, their, their resource strengths from from the neck of the woods there um, or down to to New Mexico um, or, um, or or Southern California and kind of looking at some of the uh, same, wildfire challenges that the, the Pacific Northwest faces, um, certainly our friends in California do as well. And so it was my job to find opportunities to uh, provide the most benefit for both members of Congress who are on these field tours, as well as their staff, um, to be able to see uh, and learn and hear as much uh, information as possible when when going to these communities and making sure that the the local communities felt like they were having their voices heard um, as well. So it, it was these incredibly creative opportunities for us to like, you know, jump into a community for two days, let's say, pack it full of talking to as many people as possible, seeing as many things as possible. And I think uh, that that's provided me also just a, a, an opportunity to benefit the Pacific Northwest and our region as well, because we also hosted uh, field tours here where we brought members of Congress out here to our river power system and got them on the river and through a lock-in dam and to learn about um, some of the incredible research taking place at our dams, you know, led by Pacific Northwest National Laboratory on how we can continue to uh, maximize um, the benefits for our fish species um, while coexisting with our river power system. And, uh, you know, we've got world-class research and world-class infrastructure here because of that hard work of fish biologists and scientists in the region. And I think that's something that we should be really proud of, and we need to continue to tell that story. And it was through opportunities like these field tours with the Congressional Western Caucus that we were able to introduce those stories to members of Congress from Arkansas and Iowa and, and other regions of, of the country who may not have any idea about um, the enormous benefits that we receive in the Pacific Northwest uh, because of our river power system. Oh, and I probably sound like a broken record on this podcast by this point, but um, I'll just emphasize once again that, you know, I, I can speak personally to just how powerful being in in the field is and, and how much of a difference it makes seeing things firsthand. And I, I want to touch on that certainly more. Um, but one other thing too is my experience here has been, and, and my experience really throughout um, you know my own personal career has been that getting to go out and engage with these different communities and bring these people together and, and give them an opportunity to share their experience um, you know, you really see just how willing and, and excited that people are to share that and to, to have someone to, to listen. You know, I, I think a lot of times people are listening or looking for that uh, ear to, to kind of listen in to, to what they have to share. And, um, you know, whether it's things they're excited about, concerned about, uh, maybe, you know, issues that they have that they, they want a solution to. I mean, um, you see kind of the, the whole gamut there. And, and so I'm curious if you have any specific examples that might come to mind of uh, some of those experiences of getting to travel all these different places and engage with communities. Well, I'll just say uh, perhaps not necessarily as a specific example, but just 
the overall experience, you know, never once, whether it was talking to a farmer uh, in, uh, in in West Texas or um, or a a mining worker in in northern Minnesota when we went through that region, um, not once did any of those people who had this opportunity to share their perspectives and 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 their way of life with a, a new audience with you know members of Congress from across the country never once did they go up and first say are you a Democrat are you a Republican or where do you stand on this issue or where do you stand on that issue rather it's thank you so much for coming to listen let me tell you about our way of life let, let me tell you about our industry and I think um again that just kind of goes to show if we're able to um, not fall into the the so often you know forced dynamic that we're put into, whether it's because of the media or just our system in general, uh, where we can shed shed those boxes, shed those partisan uh, leanings, and just realize that we're all just people, we're all just communities together, um, you know, wanting to work hard to to benefit our our families and our local communities. Um, it makes things a heck of a lot easier to have a dialogue. Um, and, and again, I think it, it benefits the ability to have some of the tougher discussions when we are talking about our challenges um, to be able to actually come to maybe some some common ground there. So like you said, it, it was just an invaluable opportunity to um, to see so many of these different corners of the country that I, I didn't have the chance to have ever done. And um uh, I'm I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity, and you know it was uh, it was it was really hard work. I think there's uh, it's no secret Capitol Hill uh, runs 24 seven, and you know this dynamic in this unique role with the Western Caucus, where we were not working for one member of Congress, we were working on behalf of 80. Um, it, it surely lent to um, we we could always be finding more work to be doing to to benefit these communities that those members of Congress represent. Um, and and I absolutely loved the work. I would say your your uh, message definitely gives me hope in the sense that I think if you can find the common ground somewhere between the you know uh, someone from Texas and someone from Minnesota. Uh, hopefully we can find some some common ground here in the Northwest on our own issues in our backyard. Um, so, you know, one thing I, I do really want to ask is, uh, you know, you mentioned these field hearings and tours and things like that. How have those moved the needle for you personally as far as, you know, what you've been able to observe firsthand? I think it really does lend to um, a, a willingness when people, and you mentioned this, just the importance of, of putting boots on the ground, a willingness to, to hear other perspectives. You know, it can be so easy in a hearing room in Washington, D.C. to kind of exactly paint those lines of you're over there, I'm over here, and we're going to kind of just dig in. And when you're on the ground just interacting with people, um, it, it again, it, it just kind of sheds that barrier that uh, I think that that hardened uh, exterior that we all like to to, to bear at times. And, um, and, you know, so often... Our leaders are the ones who are <laughs> talking and not necessarily listening. And so when they that that script is flipped and they're actually on the ground mm-hmm. being the ones to listen, uh, I think that is uh, just super valuable. And, and the same is set to be said for just the staffers as well who get to learn so much from these opportunities as well. 
It's funny as you were saying that because the the thing that came to mind was, you know, gosh, that sounds a lot like the issues that we have today on a a broad scale as it relates to social media. Um, You know, there's kind of a similar barrier, it sounds like, in terms of, you know, what people are willing to say and where they're willing to dig their heels in when we're having discussions online. And then you actually go out, you talk to people face to face and, you know, you get out into into these communities and all that kind of erases uh, pretty quickly. Well, it's funny you bring that up. You and I have had not talked about this, or I don't think I necessarily provided this background uh, in my my bio information to you, but I'm actually um, right now in a a national fellowship with the American Enterprise Institute back in Washington, D.C., looking uh, specifically at uh, what we're calling civic renewal uh, and that idea of civility um, and, and uniquely, I just participated in a roundtable discussion uh, with Lieutenant Governor Denny Heck, who is working on something called the Civic Health Project, where he's looking specifically at in Washington communities how we can bring civility back uh, into our, our dialogue. And so it's been a fun project for me on the side um, to be looking at ways that we can uh, rebuild civility in our institutions. And I think that's the key piece is that focus on institutions in our communities that have been degraded. Um, but I got to tell you of that conversation with Lieutenant Governor and, and other leaders, uh, was, the conversation was taking place in Spokane. Um, the number one piece was the role of social media and technology and you know, I, I talked about the fact that, you know, every Sunday I get that little notification on my phone of how many hours spent on the phone this past week. And, you know, my average is usually around nine hours a day. And that's just on that screen. That's not including my my laptop. And uh, I think uh, the there is no doubt about it that the role of social media has only further um, divided um, and, 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 you know, put us in our separate various camps, and et cetera. And it, it frankly, it just, the end of the day, dehumanizes things. And, you know, I don't want to go f- too far down the tangent here, but I think just going back to that ability to have a dialogue with others who don't, may not necessarily see eye to eye, social media has, has, has only harmed that piece. And um, I think we even fall into that when we look at some of our challenges on our resources here in the Northwest and, and our river system. Um, it's it's a hell of a lot easier to throw out a, a you know a, a divisive tweet than it is to sit down and say let's have you know a multi-hour conversation about the the actual facts on the ground and how we can move forward together. Definitely, and I think that's the the amazing thing about getting people in person is it just you know it immediately removes that. I mean, uh, I'm all for finding solutions to to do that in other ways, but. Yeah, I don't think there's anything that quite as quickly, you know, pulls away all those sort of challenges as fast as getting people actually in the same pace place and, and having them all kind of, you know, observing the same thing. And I know I asked you how, how some of these things have moved the needle for you, but what has your experience been as far as seeing how this might change, how these sort of field tours and things change perspectives for the people that you're taking out. Um, I mean, I know personally for me, I, I can attest to the fact that, um, you know, when you get some of these folks out there and, and they see things, it's, it's really a perspective shifter. But um, I'd like to hear, you know, what your what your own experience has been with that. 
Well, I know that uh, we do so at the state level as well, right? I, I know that every year um, some of our um, industry-based folks like uh, the our friends at the potato uh, <laughs> the, uh, the potato commission to the grain commission and others invite legislators from Olympia to come over and, and learn about agriculture uh, in the state, learn about our river system, uh, learn about the energy challenges here. And I think that's uh, certainly the most beneficial, you know, with the Western caucus, you know, here's a coalition of members who largely do see eye to eye on, on a majority of issues and they still have the chance to learn a ton, but when you can actually bring folks who are quite divided, who see things from very different perspectives. And when you can bring them together to maybe push some of the preconceived notions that they have about certain uh, policies or industries, that's really where I think the, the needle can be moved. And um, to your point, you know, it comes back to that that ability to spend time um, in person with one another is invaluable. And, you know, a lot of people say that that's one of the reasons that DC has changed so much from the quote good old days is when, you know, members would largely um, spend a majority of their time and their lives in DC when they were elected, their families would be based there because it was a lot more difficult to be able to get home and to travel to their districts. And so they would spend more time together, they would have more meals together, their families would get to know one another. But nowadays, you know, they're constantly on the road, uh, flying back home, having to fundraise, et cetera. And so it, it lends to um, less relationship building, uh, less dialogue. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think <laughs> I think field hearings and those kind of opportunities, excuse me, field tours, uh, those kind of opportunities um, certainly provide um, uh, positive benefits. Um, at the micro level, but I think there there perhaps should be some kind of macro conversations and and um, challenging ourselves to look at how can we make sure that we're not going so far down the the needle where we don't you know interact with one another at all. And you know, COVID had a huge huge um, impact on that. I mean, um, elected officials weren't gathering together for for months on end. Um, there were some members who didn't go to DC. You know. For, for over a year. Um, and, and I think that really corrodes the ability to build relationships, especially those across the aisle that are so important. So um, again, I think I'm going down the rabbit hole a little bit here, but uh, I, I think just providing those venues to have dialogue with folks who you may not see eye to eye with um, are certainly uh, the key to being able to find common ground um, in in our challenging um, debates that we have in the country. Well, and I'll just say I appreciate that you do go down that rabbit hole because it's a it's an interesting thing to to sit there and think about a bit. I mean, I know as we were discussing today, for example, um, you know, one of the things that came up is like gosh, I don't know that we've ever met, <laughs> right? I mean, um, you know, with COVID and everything, you know, obviously we've been, um, you know, working together, River Partners and Policy Center and everything like that and, and partnering with, um, you know, some of the, the efforts uh, congressionally and all that. But, you know, there's, there's that question of like, yeah, I don't think we've ever been in the same place at the same time. <laughs> You know, and that's certainly a, a thing that I think a lot of people can relate to, but we might not realize that it also is impacting our our politics and 
that, you know, just the same way that average people in our, our everyday lives are, are not as connected as we were before, you know, the, the people that are trying to run the country and make policy decisions aren't really building relationships a normal way either. And, and so it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting to think about it from that perspective. Well, and let's just say that, you know, you were on one partisan side and I was on another partisan side. Just think, you know, here, here you and I have a working relationship and I've never met, but if we were on opposite sides of the aisle or of an issue or what have you, you got to think just how much more detrimental that, that fact is of, of not being able to build that relationship or have a dialogue at all. Um, and, and, you know, obviously, again, just so greatly appreciate the working relationship that we have had with Northwest River Partners over the years. Um, but so, it, yeah, it, it, it kind of just it, it lends a little bit of. Um, understanding of, wow, no wonder things can be challenging is if folks aren't even talking or have never had the opportunity to engage with one another, um, how can we expect for, for progress to be made? No, it, that is a really good point. And, um, you know, it, yeah, it, it definitely is. Uh, it's something, something that I appreciate you're able to share because, yeah, I, I, you know, people just wouldn't probably ever think about it. I mean, it's kind of obvious in some ways when you, when you really sit down and, and start, you know, going through the, going through the motions on that. But I, I don't know that that would just be immediately obvious to, to the average person. Um, going back to, going back to kind of that discussion though, um, you know, how, how does all this experience put you now in the position that you're at where um, you are tied into, to the, the hydropower issues to the to the river system, the communities, everything like that. Um, you know, you touched on it a little bit with your previous work, but obviously now, you know, it's it's become more of, of something that's kind of a, a big part of of what you're working on. Yeah, I think you know that creativity piece um, is something that I so very much enjoy, but also think is really important in that um, in in telling our story. And I and I. You know, a huge takeaway from my experience with ag forestry, where you had, uh, you know, all of us gathering from various sectors and industries. Um, and, and a key takeaway for all of us is we all need to better tell our story. Uh, it helps educate others. It helps enlighten folks, um, again, to kind of lose those preconceived notions they may have. And so for me, tapping into that creativity of being able to tell stories about the leadership that is espoused by industry and and again our um, incredible leadership here in the region on energy issues and resource management um, is something that I am really excited to be tapping into now to collaborate between both the federal and the state and local uh, storytelling um, and so you know from your your traditional means of, of telling a story to um, perhaps the, the more unique and creative components of like getting a, a group of members of Congress on a boat here at Columbia Point in Richland and, and shipping them up the river and through a lock and dam. Um, I think it's, it's really exciting for me to be able to now tap into um, 
finding new ways that we can collaborate to, to tell our story. And, and, and again, I think that sense of pride that we have in, in our region, I mean, we, we feed the world um, here in Eastern Washington and we power not only the state, but the region and other states as well. And we do it cleanly and we do it affordably. And, and so I think that's something that um, is one reason I was so excited to be able to return home and uh, to become a Washington state um, uh, citizen again, although I, I, I certainly have always claimed that uh, during my time in DC. Um, and so I, I think uh, the, the opportunity now, again, to be boots on the ground here and, and helping contribute to uh, the, the ability for local communities to tell their story um, is, is just so fulfilling for me. Um, and, and I'm excited about the, the opportunities to come, including um, some uh, coming up here in the, in the very near, near future that I know um, you'd love to chat about. Absolutely. You know, one of, the, one of the stories in particular is something that we discussed when we were kind of setting up, uh, getting ready for the podcast. And you brought up a fascinating untold story that really caught my attention. And untold stories are kind of a, a big part of what, you know, we've tried to make Dam the podcast all about. Uh, so maybe firstly, you know, I'll just set the scene for folks real quickly. Last year, we saw the completion of the Murray Inslee process, which engaged in regional stakeholders and the public to try to figure out whether or not the Lower Snake River dams could be removed. And naturally, at North Reserve Partners, you know, we're Lower Snake River Dam advocates, and we were a bit critical of that process and felt that it asked kind of the wrong question because it really looked at whether the dams could be removed instead of whether they should be removed. And ultimately, you know, we did see that outcome as a success. It clearly stated that dam removal is infeasible in the near term and that other efforts to recover salmon should be prioritized. But on the other hand, from, from what you described to me, it sounds like, you know, okay, on paper, that's great, but you know, it, it isn't all, um, you know, all positives. Um, maybe you could describe to me from your perspective, what that Murray Inslee process looked like, first of all. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's, it's so important to recognize that um, when government takes action, it places an impact on people, on communities, on industries. And so this idea of, all right, we're going to study this again, it, that may sound all fine and good, but when you actually dig into what does that mean when uh, an official government process is initiated to study an issue, um, that means any of the people, employees, sectors, organizations, communities impacted by that issue have to devote time, energy, resources, money, their budgets in order to make sure that they aren't left out of that analysis. And so here we are, you know, last year is when it concluded, but the, the study was initiated right on the tail end of COVID in which, you know, Let's talk about our agricultural community for a moment. We had markets absolutely decimated, destroyed, disappeared because of the unique challenges that that COVID brought about. And so you think of some of our, you know, state supported organizations like our agricultural commissions. So think of like the Green Commission. They have very limited budgets and those budgets 
they would like to be utilized to open new markets so that we can find opportunities for our growers and producers to, to send their products to other regions, to other, uh, to, to new markets. And rather than that, that small funding being utilized to do so, it instead had to be focused on playing defense on making sure that all of their data, all of their information is coordinated and provided for this governmental process to make sure that they aren't left behind. Because if they don't participate in the process, if they don't lend the facts, the data, the numbers that are so important uh, to be to be shared with these processes, then then the the governmental process, the the, the policy makers may make you know assumptions or may make the wrong decision. And so, again, you think about these small organizations who are working on behalf of our local farmers, instead of utilizing that that funding to open new markets, they were having to, to focus on this, once again, what I would say is a, a politicized process, a politicized study. And, and it hurt them. It, it hurt these organizations. And that's what I've been hearing in my six months coming back home is, again, it is it is this untold story of, you know, we all kind of shrugged off the Murray Inslee process, like, oh, we're so glad that they concluded what they did. All right, let's move forward. But organizations are still hurting because of the amount of resources they had to provide for this process. And I think that's that is an untold story that needs to be shared because we see even more studies being proposed again and again and again. And, you know, we can continue to study the heck out of these things in hopes of a different conclusion. But when the conclusion continues to be the same thing over and over, you would think the message would be, would, <laughs> would, would land. Um, so uh, that's why, like I said, I, I do think it's important we talk about these things, even though it may be in the rear view mirror, because it's going to continue to rear its ugly head. And I think it's really unfortunate that that process was um, one that was political in nature. It, it harmed local communities and um, it didn't do anything to benefit the, the region or the producers that were so um, devastated coming out of COVID. We can certainly relate here at our organization in terms of just the, the sheer amount of work that, that we put into it. And, you know, I wouldn't say that we came out of it on the other side, maybe, um, you know, in the same position as some of the, the folks you were describing. But yeah, it was definitely, I mean, you know, in terms of just yeah, stress level, workload, everything like that. It, it really did, um, you know, challenge us here. And, and so, um, you know, that, that really does resonate. It's, it's also something that I think is important to, to bring up and, and something that I think, you know, I'm hearing you kind of saying as well is that the nature of the process was interesting in that it wasn't necessarily doing any sort of like new studying. I mean, it wasn't um, you know, looking for new data, new new scientific information, points like that. But really, it did rely so heavily on the stakeholders themselves to provide the input. And so I can definitely understand that that, that would create a lot of pressure on some of the folks that you're talking about in terms of making sure that they're being represented there and that they're able to, to share their side of the story. Well, and, you know, unfortunately, far too much of that data may just be 
you know, put in the back of the report and not actually utilized in the findings when, you know, things are, are handpicked and um, you look at the the footnotes at the bottom of, of the references and it's, you know, just the same sources over and over utilized rather than um, sharing these other perspectives. But, um, but yeah, you know, you talk about your guys' experience, you guys are a small organization. And when you have government um, step in and, um, you know, dictate these decision-making processes, um, it's all of a sudden like, well, okay, we have, we have to respond. We have to be a part of this process or we are going to be on the losing end of this. So, um, it's, it's indicative of, of why I think, um, it, it was, uh, uh, just harmful in nature. You know, I'll, I'll go back to that Vietnam trip that I mentioned, um, that, that field tour that our ag forestry, uh, cohort took when I, I couldn't get over this fact, you know, everywhere we traveled, um, we would, you know, have dinner each night and they would have, you know, a few selections of, of beer, um, you know, similar to our Miller Lite and Coors Light, you know, your household uh, kind of names. And one of the cans, I couldn't get over this. Um, again, this is the equivalent of their Coors Light that we saw everywhere throughout Vietnam. On the bottom of the can, right on the front said Yakima hops on it. And I couldn't get over that fact that here we are on the other side of the planet um, and in our hands is uh, a product um, from right here at home. And I think that just goes to show how important uh, we recognize the work of these commissions um, that, again, are so supported on a nonpartisan basis by um, by our leaders Um in, in opening new markets and providing those opportunities for our growers to, to feed the world. Um, and uh, again, you think about the impacts of a small little organization um, having to instead focus on opening those new markets and rather play defense with their own government. Um, it's, it, again, it, it, it's harmful, but, uh, but boy, I, I got to tell you just how much pride I had in the fact that here we are traveling all over Vietnam and every night <laughs> in our hand was uh, a can of, of Yakima Valley hops. That that was pretty awesome. Well, it's really amazing just how important the agriculture of the Northwest is to not only our, ourselves and our region, but really to the world. And, you know, it's something we try and, and talk about a lot, but I think sometimes it's still just like, you know, hard for people to wrap their heads around. Um, but certainly if you were to, to have the kind of experience that, that you're talking about, I would imagine that that would definitely drive the message home maybe a little bit more. Well, in the diversity of products that we have in the state, right? We have over 300 commodities that we grow here. So yeah, I mean, no wonder we're going to see these things all over the globe. Um, but to be, to be able to actually see it firsthand, and this was by no means a, a coordinated uh, stunt or anything like that. This is something that just happened organically that we kept running into. Um, and, and to have, you know, some of my classmates who um, are coming from these, these same communities and, and, and some some of the others who were like, hey, all right, how can we get our blueberries to this area? Or how can we get our wheat utilized here as well? Um, I think it it's not only um, heartening to see it, but also motivational for others um, and, and just demonstrates the the impact that that a small change can have for 
um, a family farmer or a local grower um, when it comes to to opening up the world's markets for us. And so, you know, we're we're the most trade reliant state in the country. And I think that's something that we should be proud of. And, and obviously our, our river system plays a huge role in our ability to, to, to be exactly that. It, it is pretty amazing. And, and like you said, yeah, I mean, a, a significant amount of that is making its way out to the rest of the world via our rivers and, and our locks, which is, is pretty amazing. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think, uh, it's it's easy to take that for granted or say oh we could do it another way but yeah um, there's no doubt that those those play a huge role in in making that whole process happen. Um, one question that I w- I do want to ask you and and I don't mean in terms of of numbers I'll preface it by saying that but maybe just in terms of you know describing the the experience for some of these commissions and the groups that you're talking about. I mean, what did the investment look like? I mean, in terms of, of workload, in terms of, you know, just what what sort of things had to be moved and shifted and, and what they had to do to to make themselves heard in the in the process. I mean, what did it take to to really make this happen? And and you know, maybe that'll help paint the picture for people trying to understand, you know, just where they find themselves in the position they're in today. Oh, we're talking with the Murray Inslee process, hundreds of thousands of dollars when you look at across the board between the the many groups that had to respond to this and the manpower. And like I said, the time, energy, the funding, their, their, the, the, the proportion of their budgets put toward this, um, it, it, it's staggering. And, and you know, um, I, I'll, I'll just say anecdotally, you know, somebody who was directly involved in responding to this at one point, you know, just behind the scenes in a respectful way, asked Senator Murray's staff and said, you know, did you guys at all consider what kind of impact this has on us, you know, coming out of COVID? And, and you know, to their credit, they said, wow, no, we, we didn't. We, we didn't really think of that, you know, and, and I think that can be um, part of the issue when it comes to, to government action and, and to these studies is, oh, this is it, it. There's no harm, no, no foul. Right. It's we're just studying these processes and, you know, coming out with a report and we'll see how, you know, how it goes. But um, they don't take into consideration um, how just what an impact it does have on on organizations, on industries, on local communities. Um, so it, it it's it is not insignificant by any means, and I think that goes to show why you know I just feel it's so important that we are telling this story. I, I certainly appreciate it too because I mean I'm I'm speaking as someone who is here at our organization and saw what we put into it. And yet in some ways, you know, you almost become kind of, I don't want to say numb to it, but it's just like, oh yeah, this is what we have to do, right? I mean, this is just part of the work. This is, you know, the the natural thing that makes sense for us to to do in order to, um, you know, be the organization we say we are and everything like that. But um, to actually, you know, really discuss this at, at, at length and, really start to think about, okay, what, you know, what is the actual impact here? I mean, I, I think that that's something that is really important to, to share with the world because there's a lot of people out there that, um, you know, are, are going to gain that perspective from listening to today's discussion. And that's a tremendously valuable thing to consider for all of us. Um, 
And I'll just oh, Austin, I'll say that's exactly right. I, you know, I think, you know, you and I as kind of on the, the policy side of things, you know, whether it's yeah with a nonprofit or a congressional office, um, you know, that's that's kind of par for the course. This this is naturally the kind of work we do. But for a wheat farmer on the Palouse who maybe serves um, on a board of their commission um, to 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 have to, again, divert so much of their time, energy and their funding toward these processes, that's not par for the course. That's not part of their job. That's not going to benefit them in feeding the the state, the country, the world. And so I I, I think you're exactly right when you say it kind of hopefully can lend us lend some perspective for folks who aren't like you and I who are in an office, but actually the folks who are who are doing the real hard work out there, right? Um it it, it just demonstrates um again just that that depth of impact. And so, you know, there's something else, too, that I I think is worth mentioning. And it's something that just really came to mind for me today, uh, the morning that we're recording this, uh, which is, you know, a a bit before it's actually going to come out and and people will be listening to it. But uh, I saw an article that said that Washington State has now become the, I believe, the second highest average gas price in the nation just behind California. And so when you think about that, um, you know, looking at sort of the whole timeline of things, you have the the pandemic uh, and then, you know, going into this process. And then I imagine for a lot of these uh, rural communities and, and folks in agriculture that fuel prices, uh, especially like diesel prices, are, uh, you know, an extremely big part of, of their budget and their ability to, you know, make sure that they can make everything work right i mean all that equipment takes fuel to power um and so i guess the question i'd like to ask you is you know how do these impacts get passed on to the regular folks i mean it's one thing to say oh well these guys are you know they find themselves in a difficult position now because they they stretch themselves so thin to get through the pandemic or to uh you know allocate resources to participate in the murray Inslee process or, you know, now to, to try and find ways to make things work with prices and inflation and, and all these different things increasing. But, um, you know, when you're talking about crops that go out to the world, I mean, what, what does that impact actually look like for people? Well, it, your timing uh, is funny with that question because actually, uh, again, as of this morning, I actually have a piece in the Spokesman Review today uh, focusing on <laughs> gas prices and uh, <laughs> and why they're uh, so high, why, why they've been so high this year. And um, frankly, my piece gives the heads up that we should only expect them to, to increase even more this summer. And, and again, um, here I am, you know, now focused on, on state-based policy, and it's literally just within our state borders that we're seeing this impact. Um, so if you cross over to Idaho, if you cross over to Oregon, um, you will see that they are not facing the same steep increases we have, and that's um, because of our new cap-and-trade uh, climate program um, in which uh, industries are having to buy uh, carbon allowances, and at the tune of the first auction, raised nearly three hundred million dollars that uh, industries had to pay for these allowances uh, back in February. And uh, another was just held at the end of the May, uh, to the tune at the end of uh, of May, excuse me, to the tune of five hundred and fifty-seven million that they had to pay this time around. Um, 
increasing the cost of carbon so high uh, that it actually triggered another auction is going to have to be held uh, in August um, due to that 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 spike. So um, state policies have very much uh, a direct impact on on your local farmer and. Interestingly, and, and again, I'm going to be going in a little into the weeds here, um, when that climate bill was signed into law in 2021 by Governor Inslee, it specifically exempted the agricultural industry because they knew what an impact it would have on them. Unfortunately, the Department of Ecology has not done their job in um, standing up a process for how those exemptions would work. And so agriculture is paying the same increases that everyone else is. And like you said, on diesel specifically, it's even higher. Um, and so uh, unfortunately, the, the legislature, a few last minute proposals were thrown out uh, there to try and address this, to try and keep that agricultural exemption in place and, and actually implemented. But unfortunately, uh, they did not get the job done. And um, from everything I'm hearing on the ground is this will likely lend to uh, litigation, which is something, unfortunately, you and I are all too familiar with on the river system. Um, well, the same will be said now for our agricultural producers who are being really just hammered uh, by uh, by this cap and trade system and and the high gas prices that that we're all seeing. So, um, so to your point, <laughs> there there is a direct um, there is a direct impact, and you know. The governor's office will constantly just kind of point fingers at, you know, greedy oil companies, but it's a fundamental recognition, or it should be a fundamental recognition of how markets work is that when these industries are forced to pay hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in order to, um, you know, purchase these these quote allowances, um, of course, those costs are going to have to trickle down to the actual uh, buyers because that's that's how that's how business works. That's how our markets work. That's how capitalism works. And um, you know, we we can blame the greed all we want, but at the end of the day, who is forcing them to pay those? That, that more than half a billion dollars in this last auction. And, and it's the state, it's the state process. And may I just say, you know, we are absolutely the highest in the nation now. California does have a similar process set in place. But after that second auction we just had, we are now paying more than 80% higher on carbon than the state of California, 84% um, higher than what they've priced their carbon allowances at. So we are unfortunately leading the way in this sense, but I don't think it's for the benefit. And, you know, what we at the Washington Policy Center and my colleague, Todd Myers, who's our director on the Center of, of Environment, is, is constantly talking about is, all right, we're, we're paying more for this, but we're actually not going to see a reduction in, in emissions here. It's We're, we're paying more for uh, a lack of solutions. Why don't we actually talk about opportunities for solutions to reduce emissions that will actually see an impact rather than simply taxing our way through um, and not actually <laughs> moving the needle on, on emissions reductions. So again, going down a little bit of a rabbit hole there, but I had to with my new state policy hat on. And uh, I think it just, again, it goes back to your very point of when government takes actions, it does impact the the you know the individual. It does impact that single farmer, um, that single producer. Well, I I would certainly say that uh, you know on the record we would 
advocate for uh, not removing hydropower as one one way to uh, make sure that we're meeting our, our climate objectives. <laughs> so uh, I'll, I'll throw that one out there. But, um, you know, one uh, one thing that that, you know, I am curious about it, you know, as you said, you know, it, it raises prices for the buyer. Um, I mean, does this does this translate to, hey, we're going to pay more at the grocery store? Does this look like, uh, you know, products are going to be less available at, you know, at for consumers? Or um, does this also potentially mean that, you know, some of those products like the, the Yakima Valley, you know, the hops and things and the wheat that's going over to Vietnam, I mean, um, you know, do they start to look elsewhere for sources or, you know, it, it could be a combination of all three. I'm certainly, you know, not saying it's a, a binary thing, but I'm curious what those impacts do look like. Well, that's exactly right. I think, you know, post COVID, we've all seen the um, incredible, uh, uh, tumultuous, you know, ups and downs and, and, and struggles for our supply chains on the inflation side of things on, and just costs overall. And so, um, you know, I, I can't speak to what kind of repercussions we could see potentially on our supply chains due to these increased gas prices, but I think it's certainly only going to continue to contribute to the difficulty for the average Washingtonian to be able to fill up at the pump um, amidst a, a lot of these other, yeah, um, increased prices at the grocery store, et cetera, that we've been seeing post-COVID. So, um I, I can't speak to the to the macroeconomic level, but I can certainly speak to the fact that you know your average Washingtonian that lives here in eastern Washington in eastern Washington, excuse me, is is going to to really feel that burden when it comes to filling up at the pump this summer, and that's something that we usually see on a cyclical basis each summer. Uh, but unfortunately, here in Washington State, we're going to see it even worse because of that state based system. So, with regards to energy policy and, and some of the things that are impacting um, the folks you're talking about. I know that we're not necessarily out of the woods on this. I mean, you know, this this study and, and these processes, you know, it, it it's not like a, a one and done type of thing. Uh, what else do you see happening regionally and nationally with regards to energy policy that could be of concern for hydropower and those that are depending on the rivers? Well, yeah, I think, you know, we're what, only six months or six weeks out of the uh, legislature wrapping up their their job in Olympia, and unfortunately, as I mentioned, you know, rearing its ugly head is um, the legislature once again funded um, two multi million dollar studies on how we can replace the benefits of the system uh, of of the, of the river dam system, and so um, it, it, this is something that we just see time and time again, and. You know, I, I do see some of our local leaders here in eastern Washington who um, have spoken up about the fact that, again, why are we wasting taxpayer dollars on these studies that are only going to come up with the same information, the same um, data that we can, we've already, we already have. Um, and so um, it, it's a concern for me that you know, I think let's just go into the the black and white dynamic of, you know, breaching the dams or not breaching the dams. And, and I've always said that obviously this federal system is, you know, Congress would have to take, uh, make an act uh, in order to actually breach them, which is something that I don't think is ever going to happen. However, it isn't going to be just one day that we wake up and Congress says, all right, let's breach these dams. 
that's not the actual threat to our system. It's the death by a thousand cuts that's actually going to harm our river power system. If we make these these dams so obsolete that they can't actually produce the clean, affordable, reliable power that they have for so many decades, then yeah, that is what's going to end up being the 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 threat to their ability to to continue. And that's what we see with litigation after litigation and and mandate after mandate from a judge's bench in how the operations are conducted at these dams, rather than letting the actual engineers and scientists who know how best to operate this system for both the benefit of the communities on a on a, an energy level, but also for the benefit of our natural resources and our fish species. If, if, if a judge is dictating how the, the system is run rather than those experts, then yeah, they are going to become obsolete. They are going to die a death by a thousand cuts if we continue to limit their ability to to produce um, efficient energy. So uh, that that's always, I think, been my my concern, my perspective here. And so it's not going to be an easy, just black and white. All right, we saved the day. Congress didn't vote to breach the dams. Rather, it's a lot of these other bureaucratic processes that are taking place that don't catch the headlines, that don't catch attention from folks that are the real issue and um, are something that demonstrates why, you know, Northwest River Partners and Washington Policy Center and so many other advocates for the system have to continue to do our jobs because um, we're never going to just be done, right? We're not, we're never going to um, have a, you know, mission accomplished day, um, because that's, these, these issues are too serious and too complicated, um, to, to be able to, to have such a, a binary, uh, approach. It's, it's going to be, um, the work for, for decades to come, um, in, in how critical it is to make sure that we keep the lights on in our region and, um, the power on for, for our communities. So one thing I want to ask you too there, I mean, we, you know, we have, uh, Definitely worked really hard too on on you know looking at um, you know the the upcoming studies that were funded there and um, you know we did a lot of uh, tremendous work I think you know as a region to to make sure that these are going to be uh, you know a step in the right direction in terms of how they're conducted and and what they're going to look like but do you still see the maybe some concern there for for some some of the folks that you talked about in you know. Uh, the ones that are struggling kind of post Murray Inslee, you know, is there still some concern there that they're going to run into issues with these studies? Again, I'll just go back to my overall premise that anytime government takes action, there will be an impact on folks. And we need to recognize that. And and that's why it's important to, to know that we can't just willy nilly throw these ideas out there, that there are repercussions. Um, so, so yes, absolutely. I mean, Every day that, um, you know, uh, an agricultural, uh, whether it's an organization or an actual farmer is not actually spent focusing on their jobs on whether it's the actual growing and producing or expanding markets every day that they're not focused on being able to do their job is going to hurt them. Um, no doubt about it. And, and especially when we force them to keep just doing the same thing over and over again. Um, it's, 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 it's a head scratcher and, and it, it, it can also lend 
to the idea of, you know, people become numb to it. It's like, all right, well, well, it's just another study. I guess we'll just dig up the same information. And and that's not what we can do because we have to be, we have to make sure that the facts continue to be on our side. And so the numbers can't just be kind of pulled out of thin air. They have to actually be the facts and data on the ground uh, to make sure that we're getting it right. Um, So uh, I'll never discount the, um, the, the repercussions, the impact that um, such actions have uh, on on these sectors um, and on these communities. Well, and, and to your credit, what you're saying also aligns with something that I discussed with one of our previous guests here on DAM, uh, Blaine Meek from Agri Northwest. And, you know, we talked a lot about just the fact that, yeah, this, you know, these are, we're talking about crops, right? We're talking about agriculture, things that are, are constantly, you know, living and in fluctuation and, um, you know, they don't just sit idly by while people are focused on other things or, or while, you know, issues are coming up. Uh, I mean, you know, you can't, uh, you can't really steer them in any one direction. They're going to, they're going to do what they're going to do. So yeah, what you're saying, I mean, it, you know, it makes perfect sense in terms of, yeah, if they're not, you know, if people aren't out there working and, and tending to that, you know, things can get out of hand pretty fast. Absolutely. Yep. No, I, um, I, I would just, I would completely agree. So you also brought up, um, you know, some of the, the challenges there with um, litigation. And, you know, what are you seeing when it comes to the courtrooms and, and how that could impact the hydro system? Yeah, unfortunately, like we've seen um, this far too much is just a, a politicization. Um, and, and I think it kind of goes back to the start of our conversation about the idea of Let's have a let's have a real dialogue. Let's actually, you know, sit down and and work through this together. And instead, when certain interests and industries are kept in the dark, and there's a a, a direct political, you know, um, motive that's being utilized to say, all right, we're just going to include, you know, strategic decision making with certain perspectives and with certain industries and not others. Um, that's never going to lend to a comprehensive beneficial solution for the region. And, you know, so often government is about um, coming together and not everyone being completely happy, but they should all be a part of the process. And when that happens, when everybody has to give a little, but also to get a little, um, that's usually at the end of the day when you're you're making good policy. And so everything that I'm seeing about the ongoing um, dynamics in these um you know, this litigation and these negotiations is that um, far too many industries are being left in the dark. They're not actually having um, real seats at the table. They're not being invited to have seats at the table. And to me, that just is going to end up to, to more um, divisiveness and and not um, a true comprehensive benefit for, for how to move forward for the region. And, and that's just, it's really disappointing. Well, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny to think about it, um, you know, at the beginning of this discussion, we talked about bipartisanship versus partisanship and divides between East and West. And, you know, essentially what that boiled down to is that the things that get done tend to be bipartisan and, you know, uniform and everyone working towards the same thing. And uh, the things that are unsuccessful tend to be the ones that are divided. And in some ways, you know, it's, it's like the perfect example that we're looking at right here, which is that when not everyone is included on the solutions uh, surrounding the river system and, and managing hydro and everything like that, you know, we we end up in decades of of battle over it. And that's where you know I'll just go back to I I think the the real means of of 
finding an, an opportunity for common ground is to, again, look at the actions that so many of our leaders do take together um, unanimously when it comes to funding, um, you know, the, the ongoing uh, work on our river system, the ongoing um, support for, you know, refurb of of um of, of our dams of of supporting um fish fisheries and habitat um solutions all these things you know it's all of all of them support these things together um and i think if if they focused on that um perhaps we could actually see some progress you know over the last several years um a, a big component of these discussions have been um, the role of Congressman Simpson from Idaho and and his proposal uh, to tear down the dams and and to you know write a check for the industries um, that are harmed and uh, and and you know kind of call it a day from from what I would say and you know I'd encourage your listeners to to go back and actually Congressman Newhouse gave a speech uh, at for the Andrus Center gathering, which is you know this yearly environmental conference in Idaho where. Um, a year or two prior, Congressman Simpson had officially announced his support for, for breaching the dams. And Mr. Newhouse um, focused on a myriad of components uh, in, in these discussion in, in his speech um, on this, this issue. Um, but you know, one key point is that so often, you know, proponents of dam breaching will often say of those who don't support dam breaching that all you want is the status quo. All, all you want is is to keep you know you you are not bringing any solutions forward and that's where you know I I very much um, take pause there because that's that's actually not true and and I go back to that very point is every year on a bipartisan basis Democrats and Republicans come together to support putting in new turbines at the dams providing more resources for fish habitat and fisheries and all of the benefits for, uh, you know, beneficial programs uh, that are supporting our fish, all of them together are supporting continued progress. This idea that any of us want just the status quo and don't want to see increased runs for our fish and increased efficiencies for our clean hydro uh, system, that's just not true. And so I, I think that's such a um, a lazy argument to be made is, oh, well, all you want is the status quo. You're not providing solutions. Um, you know, we have all kinds of federal solutions that have been proposed. Uh, and every year, our leaders fund those solutions to make sure that we continue to see progress. And I think that's that's a key component of the story that um, we need to make sure that we're telling is all of us are continuing to support progress being made. No, we we certainly are, and um, you know you you bring up a lot of great points there. I mean there there have been numerous improvements, and um, you know again something I, I say probably too often at this point on the podcast is that uh, you know the the dams themselves might appear the same, but as far as what's being done internally to improve them and make them better for uh, you know generating energy, better for fish passage, better for all sorts of things, you know um, those improvements are are constantly being made and. Um, as you as you mentioned, you know it's uh, it's something that is being done, um, you know, with support and funding from you know all sorts of different groups. So um, no, it's a, a really fantastic point. 
And and again, I go back to that point about leadership. And and again, it's <laughs> this we've got world class research that's being conducted here. That and and you know you can use that term world class very um, flippantly if you'd like, except for the fact that it's true that the research that's being conducted here, the efficiencies that have been made on the turbines on our dams here are now being used by industry and governments in other parts of the world. And so again, that that key piece of telling our story, we are leaders here in the Columbia Basin when it comes to energy and resource management and, and developing further efficiencies there. And you know, so often, um, this dynamic uh, of this debate is is focused on, you know, we you're harming the environment, you're not supporting native fish species, et cetera. And yet, actually, we are developing world-class solutions in order to demonstrate that these things can coexist together. We can continue to benefit our fish species so that we have bigger and bigger runs moving forward. Um, and so it's something that we should actually be proud of and not at all ashamed of. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Speaking of of leadership and and solutions and, and trying to find ways to to make some progress on these issues, we've got this natural resources committee field hearing coming up. What opportunities are you seeing there in terms of of what we can do to to move forward on some of these hydro issues? Yeah, I'm I'm really excited that the resources committee is going to be coming back out to. Uh, the Northwest to talk about these things. I helped initiate uh, a field hearing here in Tri-Cities, I think it was five years ago now, back in 2018. And, um, you know, similar to all of those field tours uh, and those various opportunities that we discussed earlier in the conversation with the Western Caucus, I think the same goes here is when we can highlight um, the, the expertise of the actual local leaders, the folks who are directly impacted and who help directly manage um, the system and the industries that that rely upon it, um, then all of us are going to benefit. And our leaders in Washington, D.C. from across the country are going to benefit uh, to hear from them. And so I'm really excited. I know we've got some local energy officials who will be speaking, some policy folks, some representing the agricultural community, the river system. And so, uh, again, having the opportunity to tell our story, to be proud of the leadership that we espouse here in the Columbia Basin, um, and to share it with an audience um, of members of Congress from, from across the country. Uh, I think it's, it's, it's going to be a tremendous opportunity for us to, to, to do all of those things. And on the note of opportunities, are there opportunities that our audience here today could make a difference? Well, you know, listen, with when we have an audience of members of Congress coming here, um, that that goes. Let's tap into it, right? So, write a letter to the editor and the paper, recognizing that we're going to have these folks coming here in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, submit an op-ed to your local paper. I'm I'm very much um, a traditionalist when it comes to the power of 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 the written word and and of your local paper, um, but also obviously, you know, utilizing even you know, we talked about some of the detriments of social media earlier, but there can be the positives. And so, um, you know, share your, share your perspective out there. Um, you take this opportunity, this moment where, Hey, with the frame of mind that our local community is about to be, uh, visited by 
members of Congress, leaders at the federal level, um, you know, share share your thoughts there and uh, provide that opportunity to be an impetus for for your friends and your networks to be hearing that message, even though it may you know be old news to them or to some of them. Um, I'm willing to bet that um, most of us have people in our in our lives in our networks that can always be learning more, hearing more about the the benefits of our of our system. And you know, I live in Tri Cities here. You know, many of our communities uh, in the region just simply would not be here without our river power system and all of the benefits they provide to us. Um, and it's incredible to see the growth taking place in regions like Tri Cities. Um, and so much of that is due to um, our, our 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 incredible water resources our incredibly affordable, reliable, efficient, clean power that we have here as well. Um, so, uh, so, so many benefits for us to constantly be uh, grateful for. And, and so take that opportunity to, to tell your story, uh, to share uh, your, you know, your gratitude for how lucky we are to live in such a beautiful and, um, you know, beautifully gifted uh, region. Now, let me ask you this, having worked in, you know, congressional um, you know, having worked for like Congress and Newhouse, for example, and, you know, filling these different congressional roles. When when people write in like that, when people, you know, take the time to to do that and, and share their perspectives and stories and things like that, how impactful actually is that? Because so often we, what we hear here, um, you know, I've heard it, I've gotten emails about it. I've, I've heard it from people at uh, different events, community events that we go out to and, and host booths at that oh, you know, that's a, a waste of time. They don't listen to me anyways, <laughs> you know, things like that. Um, you know, but having you here today, maybe you could explain, um, you know, what what value those things do hold and and maybe make a case for, for why people should or, you know, shouldn't pursue different avenues of, of getting involved. No, I appreciate that question a lot. And, and I'll just, I, I can't understate how important it is because, so often members of Congress will receive these, um, uh, they're little, um, they're not surveys, what's the right word? Essentially there's little online campaigns where you, know, you get an email and it says, write your name here and we'll automatically send you know, a form letter to our member of Congress. And so they'll get you know, 200 of the same letter over and over. And, and you, know, you obviously read those, but when you actually get um, an organic note from uh, a constituent in the district that is, you know, heartfelt or um, lending their perspective or they're telling their story. Um, it's absolutely valuable. And it is very much seen and heard um, by not only the staff, but then also the member as well. And so, um, you know, what, like you said, whether it's writing your member of Congress or a letter to the editor in the local paper or posting on social media or what have you, um, I think we should never take for granted the opportunity to, to, to share your perspective, tell your story, um, because it, it, it does make a difference. And it's, um, you know, it's incredibly valuable when a member of Congress can then point to it specifically and say, you know, I just heard from a constituent the other day, and and sharing that organic um, life story that or that that just that little tidbit um, it, it helps them do their jobs absolutely they inherently they're they're there to represent their constituents right and so actually hearing from constituents is is always helpful. Well, I appreciate that a lot, and uh, yeah, hopefully also people will 
we'll share this podcast as well. And uh, that can be one great way to, to get the word out. And also, you know, uh, one great way to, to convince other people that uh, they should actually take the time to do those things. And, and you know, really, uh, I appreciate you taking the, you know, taking the time to to explain the value to, to our listeners of, of that stuff. Um, <laughs> always trying to find ways to, to do it. And I, I have absolutely no shame about it either. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I feel like I blinked and we burned through almost an hour and a half here. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this today. I think, as you mentioned, you know, we could we could probably uh, have an entire book on any number of the subjects that were were discussed uh, during today's podcast. But while I've got you kind of on a, a more you know advice focused note, um, we do this thing on every episode where we we try to make uh, a good connection with our audience between the guests that we have on and and themselves and and. You know, we're all about kind of telling not only the, the untold stories and, and trying to get as many of these really interesting perspectives out there, but we also want people to have the, the story of, of the guest that we're having on, right? And, you know, really make that, that human connection. So um, the thing that, that I ask all of our guests to do here at the end, and I, I kind of spring on them last minute so that, uh, you know, we get the most honest and, and really genuine take as possible is to ask you for just some, some general life advice. It doesn't have to be anything related to what we talked about today, but, um, you know, something that comes to mind that, uh, you know, is really valuable to you that you, you'd like to share with our audience here. Well, I appreciate that, Austin. And, um, you know, what I'll say is I'm someone who um, really values uh, a sense of place. And so as someone who, um, you know, I grew up like I said, here in the Pacific Northwest, um, but I, I I grew up very much a, a suburban uh, kind of city boy. Um, I was not around agriculture or um, uh, had never had never shot a gun before. I I went to work for the congressman on and and visited his farm, and um, I got to tell you the incredible um, work ethic that I really learned from interacting and, and working directly with rural communities. Um, you know, I think of, of things like the FFA or 4-H organizations and, and the ethic, the work ethic that they really instill in their students. And it's made me fall in love with rural communities and rural values and um, never imagined that I would um, you know, I, I originally grew up in the shadows of San Francisco and then Portland, lived in Seattle. I never thought that I would, you know, proactively decide I'm going to go move to Tri-Cities, Washington, surrounded by vineyards in the Columbia River and, and ag land, as far as you can see. Um, but I, I really fell in love with the people and the work ethic um, that is espoused by by rural communities. And so I'm just delighted to to have this be my the home by choice. Um, I'm I'm not a, an original Tricidian, but I've I've fallen in love with the people and the community, and uh, you know 
as, as a big wino as well, I, I do not at all mind being surrounded by wineries and vineyards out here. So I would just, I would say a recognition of that sense of place um, is, is something that I have really found to be important in my life. And I think it's also about making the best of, of wherever you are and finding the value of wherever you are. And I think that's where over the last eight years working for Congressman Newhouse and traveling to the communities in central and eastern Washington that I, I recognize, wow, there is so much to gain here. And there's so much value in the people and the communities here that so much so that I think I want to live there. I want to move uh, and, 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 and be a part of that community there. So that sense of place is something that I, I, I genuinely uh, value in my life. I, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, I think it's something in these days, a lot of people find themselves searching for as well. And so, uh, yeah, you know, hopefully in the way that you've been able to find it there in the Tri-Cities, a lot of our listeners are, are able to find the same thing if they don't have it already. So I, I appreciate you sharing that advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's, it's been great to be with you today. And like you said, it did, it did fly by, but I so uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, share some thoughts with your audience. And again, I'm just so grateful to all of the work that Northwest River Partners has done over the years. Um, you guys were such a key partner for me as a congressional staffer and continue to be now that I'm back home working on the state policy level uh, with Washington Policy Center. So again, we're just really grateful for the time, Austin. Oh, likewise, likewise. We're really grateful for your time as well. And, uh, you know, been happy to work with you on a lot of different things and also uh, definitely thankful for the the Washington Policy Center and some of the stuff you guys put out uh, and, you know, particularly uh, getting together some of the, the data, the information, things like that. Um, you know, I'll see some of that stuff pop up and it's like, oh, that's that's helpful because, you know, we're we're obviously trying to, to work sometimes in the same direction on a lot of issues. So, uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Thanks for making the time. And, and yeah, we'll, I'm sure, be in touch and, and talking a lot more. Sounds great. Thanks, Austin. That'll do it for this episode of DAM. Not only did today's episode provide great insight, as they always do, but it also left me with a lot of things to think about, particularly those points on working together and recognizing the impacts of actions that are so easy to neglect or overlook altogether. It's clear that Sean is passionate about these issues, and after sharing his perspective, it's really not hard to see why. Now, as he mentioned, there's some tremendous value and opportunity for you hydro lovers out there to get the word out to our policymakers. While we're all about educating them, we do it on your behalf. They're really interested in hearing from you. You can take a page out of our friend Ted Case's book, and no, not literally, of course, unless you plan on purchasing another copy, by taking 10 minutes or so to express your story through the written word. You might just find that it's something worth sharing in the name of better energy policy. All right, remember how I mentioned that Who We Are page in the intro? Well, you're in luck because we have a shiny, brand new nwriverpartners.org to go check out. While you're there, you can utilize our contact form to fill us in on potential guests and topics you'd like us to cover here on DAM. We are always open to any and all suggestions that help us continue to provide the best Northwest Hydropower podcast possible. Then, there's the other usual housekeeping. Firstly, there's the reviews. We encourage you to give us feedback on your favorite listening platform. 
Positive reviews contribute to audience growth, and audience growth means more episodes of Damn for you every other Friday. Of course, you wouldn't have to keep track of that schedule if you subscribe and turn on notifications while you're in the app you're listening through right now. Personally, I'm a Spotify guy, and I have been for a long, long time. I just checked a few days ago and discovered that we still had no ratings of any kind on the podcast page. So for my fellow Spotify people, let's get on it. I'll give our friends who listen on another platform the pass for now, but don't let me catch you ignoring this important part of supporting Dan. I've even given you permission to leave negative ratings and reviews, so there's really no excuse not to do it. Last but certainly not least, you can visit us at NW River Partners on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And I always encourage everyone to go see what we're up to there. All right, I hope you enjoyed this one. And hey, we've got a lot of great episodes coming up soon as well. So make sure to stay tuned for that. Until next time, see ya!